0: Welcome into this Five Clubs Conversation. I'm Gary Williams. I've had a lot of conversations with the gentleman who's going to join me here in a minute, and a lot of them have been on the air. More of them have been just us walking and playing golf. This is somebody who played college golf, has written about the game for decades, and is somebody who came into my life and my career at a time where I didn't know I needed him, but I really did, and I value the friendship immeasurably. Uh, But really appreciate all the time I get to talk about the game of golf with him. That is Jaime Diaz of Golf Channel. Our conversation is coming up next. That we welcome in the esteemed essayist and thought-provoking man himself. That is Jaime Diaz. How are you, my friend?
1: I'm great, Gary. Good to see you. A beautiful sweater.
0: Thank you. Um, listen, I-, I mentioned in the open that you were a college golfer. Not many people probably know that. I know that there was, you know, is a modest level of college golf, but still less than modest. Well, still <laughs> modest. Did you think, (laughs) did you think when you got to the University of San Francisco that eventually you would be good enough to like really contribute on your college golf team?
1: Well, (laughs) again, it's all relative. They, uh, they were basically taking walk-ons, but uh, so, you know, I, I, uh, I just wanted to make the team and I wanted to be able to, to, you know, sort of uh, make that part of my college life and 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 see 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 if I could get any good and you know the reality was I was just you know marginally obviously talented you played with me but at the same time um, I really didn't have the, the the program was nowhere near as uh, you know serious as as even the best ones of the day we played against Stanford and we played against uh, you know some other schools San Jose State that that had you know sophisticated programs where guys didn't graduate because they were trying to be pros. And we were just, I mean, I brought my books out to to practice sometimes because I was trying to finish an assignment or something. So it was very much a part-time thing. But at the end of the year, it mattered to us because, or it mattered to me anyway, you know, the league championship, all that. So everything was just sort of a run-up to uh, three or four events that mattered. And uh, so it was a great experience as far as, you know, my own level sort of being, I guess, maximized to some extent at the same time – Um, meaningful events to me that I tried to play well in and, and got that sort of, you know, intensity and, and understand, understood, you know, a little bit more about what it takes to be, to be competitive, to be good, to be able to handle a little bit of pressure and all that. So, I mean, yeah, it was, it was four years though. And it was, it was, I'm very, very happy. It was part of my, uh, you know, uh, second half of every year. Uh, and we got to play some great courses, you know, Olympic Club and uh, L.A. North. We played down there. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't it, it wasn't high class at all, but it was for my level. It was a great privilege. And, I, and I'm glad I had it because not because it was college golf so much, just because I was I ran into some really good players that, you know, I got. Exp- I mean, I remember playing in a tournament with Roger Malby and I just missed Tom Watson wow. um, and, uh, you know, just because of Stanford. And a few guys at San Jose State who moved on, Mike Peck and other guys. But um, I don't know. I, I I you. I've never really been asked about it. I I, I it was not, you know, a real serious golf for the most part. We tried, but we didn't really prepare with any sort of seriousness. The practices were were rare. Most of our practices we just matches, and uh, at the same time, uh, it, it meant something to me. And I I, I just felt like I want to know what this game's like when you got to just tee it up and. Count every stroke, and of course I played junior golf and things. But I started to see, I started to get an insight, I thought, into into people who were going to try to make it their life, and and what that took.
0: Well, you're still very feisty on the golf course today. I (laughs) I would have loved to have seen you hitting a faulty shot when you were 20, uh, and seeing the way you reacted to it. Uh, that would I, be vintage. a guy hold.
1: I remember a guy hold out an eagle at Sharp Park on me, and I threw my bag into the. <laughs> it, it was it was a joking gesture, but everybody talked about it later. I threw my bag into the fairway bunker, <laughs> on the seventeenth <on> <laughs> hole. So it can look good on TV. I can yeah. see it.
0: I can see it. Well, I there are, there are probably three things that I'd like to talk with you about, um, and if we get to all three, great. If we don't, there'll be a next time. But I want to start with what the USGA and the RNA uh, presented last week, because you and I were working together when the distance insights report, we were, we, mm-hmm. we, 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 went on the air that night. There was a, a pretty thorough examination, the best we could do at that time um, of what we knew. Um, and, and then subsequently COVID hits and that, you know, and the advancement of that for all intents and purposes gets shelved. So now here we come back around in the winter late winter of 2023 and we have this proposal of this, this modified local rule, which is going to have specifically a reduction of distance as it is associated with the golf ball. Were you surprised by this? Not that you might, I mean, you, you were plugged in with everybody. I'm not saying surprised when you saw it surprised that they went in this direction and in general, do you support what they're doing?
1: Yeah, Gary, I was not, you know, they, they kept it, I think under wraps pretty well, uh, there was a lot of speculation. I was surprised they went for the golf ball, because I thought that was the bolder move and one that perhaps would be more problematic as far as, you know, the uh, public opinion and the reaction of the players and the manufacturers certainly would be more intense, more criticism. And, you know, our, I think our perception of the USGA the last few years is that they've come under fire so much that their authority is, is sometimes in, in question. And as David Fay used to say, you know, we, we uh, what is it? We are, uh, we rule by the power not vested in us. I mean, it's just sort of a gentleman's agreement that we follow the USGA. So how much criticism can they take and still retain credibility and authority with with the people in, in, the, in the game of golf? And I was very heartened that they went for the, I thought, the big game, so to speak, uh, with the ball. I thought it would have been easier to go with the club, and I thought they were hinting toward the club because uh, the driver I thought was would be an isolated club, and it's not that hard to take a little COR out of it um, and and take some of the spring out of it and maybe make the sweet spot smaller. Although one of the things that just as an aside that uh, like Mike Juan was talking about in the research, the, the tour players hit the very center of the club quite often. I mean, it's like more than 90%. And so we talk about these heel hits and everything, and it's just so relative. Um, Yeah, the better player would hit it more often, but it'd be marginally more often. So it wasn't going to make that much difference, at least by their criteria, to to deal with the club in terms of the sweet spot. Now, as far as the spring off the club, yes. But if you start doing that, it turns out, well, maybe the three-wood becomes hotter, uh, uh, relatively speaking, in comparison. And then, then you have to start going down the line of clubs, all the way down through the hybrids, perhaps. And so then it becomes really impractical. So... Having said that, and with that knowledge that they gained over the last year or a half or so, that maybe the clubs wasn't the practical way to go, I just thought it was very fortuitous. They went with the ball because to me, and you're a student of, the, of sports, uh, you know, the ball's easiest thing to, uh, to, to, to to manage. I mean, we see it in tennis. They don't announce what they do in tennis when, uh, you know, there may be too many hot serves and they don't want so many aces. They put a little more fuzz on it. And all it slows down. The game changes. Certainly, baseball. There's been a lot of talk about the ball, but nobody knows exactly who regulates the ball other than the manufacturers of it. Um, You know, the seams get a little higher, or maybe it's a little hotter. It goes out of the park a little faster. You want to regulate uh, home runs? Fine. There's no lawsuits that that uh, come about because of uh, what the 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 rule the rules makers do to the the ball. Nobody nobody endorses baseballs. Uh, Nobody endorses tennis balls. Golf has that intangible not intangible, but that, that extra uh, condition where the players are involved in terms of the money as, and the manufacturers who pay them. And so that has been the pressure point for the golf ball. But they're going to take it on. And uh, I think, you know, the Distance Insights Project created this sort of uh, give and take for a couple of years is and COVID it elongated it that I think really helps um, the credibility of the USG in my mind, long term. Right now they're taking some shots, but I think as people get more... Um, educated and uh sort of uh familiar with the process they're going to say hey they talked to everybody and they made their decision trying to please probably no one but maybe everyone a little bit which is maybe the best solution uh but this really goes back to jack nicholas and others before him but jack he was on this thing exactly as it is you know uh probably uh, 40 years ago yeah so and certainly 30 years ago uh not that jack is you know, all knowing, all, all you know, uh, never never to make a mistake. But I think he knows the game. And I think he, as an architect at the time, he was looking at what, what were happening to golf courses, especially championship golf courses. So I, I was very happy about it. And, you know, it's going to be, a, I guess, a war now, a, a war of words. But I'm glad that the USGA is just doing what they think is best for the game, as they always try to do. I don't see anybody can see an agenda in any of this other than that. Everybody else has got an agenda. Doesn't mean that they're, you know, in some way, you know, tainted. It just means that the USGA is the most, in my opinion, objective source for all this. And to say that they don't know what they've been doing or haven't done the research, to me, doesn't hold water.
0: No, I think that I, I think that that refrain is lazy um, and obviously ill-informed to suggest that they're that they have not done the research. They're experts at what they do. They devote every waking moment. To to the regulations, the advancement, and the governance of the game—it's what they do. It's not—it's not a—it's. Not I'm sure at times not very rewarding because there's so much pushback on everything. Um, but let me let me ask you—you know—it this way as far as that side of it, the mm-hmm. manufacturer side of it, the elite players side of it, um, the idea of bifurcation. What do you think of the people who oppose this? What has the most merit?
1: Um, that's a good point. You know, I I don't think the bifurcation uh, claim has the most merit just to dismiss that one because in my mind anyway, because uh, that's been the most commonly uh, held objection. Okay. It's the model local rule, which is still part of, and this is just technical and semantics, but to me, it's still kind of important. It's still part of the rules of golf. You're not fragmenting the world rules of golf to make this happen. You're using something that's already within the rules of golf. It's the, it's the model local rule. The other part of it, it, it that can be applied by anyone, by any group. Uh, I mean, Martin Slumbers was talking about club golf using this model local rule. If you have some really what they consider to be really elite players who want to play by this. Anyone can play these new balls. Yes. You know, you know you can, you, there's nothing keeping you from doing it. You don't have to bifurcate, quote unquote, if you're a, a six handicap and wants to play with you know, the, the PGA tour players are playing by, in a model local rule, you can do that. So I just think it just kind of throws bifurcation out, but as far as the best objection, um, I guess it is, I wouldn't say it's scoring because scoring hasn't really moved that much because there's so many other ways of changing scoring, whether it's growing rough or changing pin positions, pole positions or screen speeds or firmness. There's just a million ways to make a golf course hard, uh, regardless of how long it is. Um, I, Gosh, that's a good question, Gary. You know, I'm trying to look at it from the player's point of view. I don't think getting accustomed to a new ball after playing, uh, you know, others uh, for so long holds a lot of water. I mean, going back, and I'm I'm sort of doing process of elimination here. Sure. And maybe you can suggest the one that you think, and then we can discuss it. Because, but you know, I remember when, even as a kid, I we somebody bring back a a a British ball back from. You know, a a visit to uh, to Scotland or something, and we and they bring a dozen ball. We all play them. Not we're just kids, obviously. Sure. But but the same thing applied to the tour players who went over to play in the Open Championship. They maybe accustom themselves for a couple of days to the little ball, and and actually, you know, enjoy the extra distance, and maybe the the more forgive more forgiveness that it that it had off of a, a miss, and everything was fine. There was nobody going, oh, I can't play this ball. It's impossible. Obviously, the the American ball was harder to play because it was it was less forgiving, didn't go as far, um, but those adjustments were made quite easily. So I don't see that aspect either. Um, but tell me, because I yeah. my mind a little. I'm yeah. not having a, an easy time kind of finding the the best objection.
0: Here's here's where I think, you know, I, I would say I I'm I'm I have some empathy for this part of it, the financial component. So these these ball manufacturers. They all have these, these economies of scale. They, 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 they get their ball right, they produce it, uh, they can market it and sell it in mass, and they're very effective at that. And that's great. And now you're gonna have this finite subset of players that are gonna require this ball. So there's gonna be cost associated with that. Um, and you can't, and I'm with you that there will be. There's going to be enough people who are going to want to play this, one out of immediate curiosity, but also about the idea of ascending themselves, whether it be elite juniors to the college game and whatever. More than just the top professionals will play this ball, but it's not the type of marketing opportunity that exists with the current balls that that we know that we want to play, that the players play. So there is cost in that. Um, and you can say, why do we have to incur all of that? What would you say to that objection?
1: I would say, and I don't mean to be hardball or unempathetic. I, I know everybody's running a business. I have a feeling, you know, the top ball manufacturers are not going to lose that much market share. If there is a rollback, there might be a perception that people have been drawn closer together. I think that will shake itself out. What I would say is that any any industry in this country or pretty much in the world is regulated. There's government regulation, there's there's an overseer somewhere. And that overseer makes decisions. And that dis- those decisions have overhead and have an effect. And that's the cost of doing business. I mean, you can sue certainly to try to uh, you know change the regulation, but in general you have to you have to conform to those regulations. And that's what businesses do and that's what R&D departments do. And just because there's a lot of geniuses I know over at the ball companies and and, and at the club companies Aerospace, you know, sophisticated type people, uh, NASA trained. Who knows? Uh, And their work is really valuable, and 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 should be, you know, really, uh, really, uh, you know, something that everybody's proud of. But it doesn't mean that it's irreversible. And people start over and do new things based on the regulations. And I, I, you know, unless those regulations are completely, you know, illogical and and uh, unreasonable. And then I think the legal process takes over, which may happen in this case, that somebody thinks this is unreasonable. But if they're not, I just feel like that's what industries do. They adapt and they're smart enough because they've already done something quite innovative that they can be innovative again. And I just don't think that that is such a onerous ask, so to speak, um, for for the manufacturers to have to adapt to what the rules makers of the game think is best for the game. Uh, if you lose that trust and you don't think it's best for the game maybe get new rules makers or don't follow the rules makers but as long as the usga and the RNA have credibility and and authority I think that you know they just should be followed and if there's a cost involved uh unless it's something you know just uh earth shaking that it doesn't have to be shared it just uh, those businesses will 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 find their way again uh to to be profitable and and to and to make things work I, I- I think that, you know, look, the, the idea of them
0: incurring a cost, I'm with you. I don't think market share is going to be a loss. I, I don't. I, I do think that, you know, they have to come up with an effective way uh, to, to make an adjustment to, you know, the, the mass production of a ball that can be then used by the overwhelming majority of of of, of a sport that is participatory. And so, you know, that's something that they're going to have to deal with. But I will say and this: Let, me, think, let yeah. me interrupt
1: real quick. I mean, I, I don't think most players, most ball, the most balls bought are the ones, uh, you know, the, the highest correct, uh, you know, highest priced balls. Uh, they, you know, there's a lot of top lights and pinnacles and all those other things we talk about out there. And uh, obviously, they, those balls have gotten better too. But uh, I, I think. I don't know this for a fact, but I I think that the the highest selling balls are not the balls being played on the uh, professional tours.
0: I I also think that, and this is natural for anybody, whatever it is, decision gets made and we all say, how's it going to affect me? Mm -hmm. Understandable. But for everybody who's looking at, at statistics right now in professional golf, you're missing the point in my estimation. This is not about 2026. This is about 2076. It's about 2100. And, and it's, it's not easy to be the one who says, you know what, I'm going to leave it to the next guy to, to take this on. This is not an easy challenge. I think it's a necessary thing uh, to take on. I've tried to examine this as best I can, be pragmatic about it. But I, I just polled, Jaime, for example, the handful of clubs in Charlotte where I live, one of them hosts a PGA Tour event, and that's Quail Hollow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of them, in the last 15 to 20 years, have added between 500 to 800 to 1,000 yards to wow. their golf courses, and you mm-hmm. know who pays the freight for that? The, the members, members themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and when is that going to stop? Because in 1997, you know, the in in and I understand this about the elite player, but it's not just about the elite player. We're mm-hmm. running out of space, so anything that Anybody wants to compare to, well, you know, basketball, baseball, football. You're not, there's right. not a sensitivity to, to the, the parameters of the playing field. This is a very costly endeavor. Yeah. Sustainability is not something we associate with the National Football League. It's 100 yards. And, and these clubs in, in the town that I live in are adding five, eight, ten football fields to their golf courses. It has it's to crazy. stop.
1: It's a great point. It is the USGA's, I think, underlying uh, point. Now, the immediate is the elite game, which I, I, I think that's the one that's most visible. But the most important in terms of golf remaining, you know, viable going forward in the environment is is that the sustainability. And I, and I think it's analogous to climate change. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to trivialize climate change, uh, to, but it, it is about this creep that's happening that it's not affecting us today but what kind of world are we going to leave and what kind of golf world are we going to leave? Uh, I think that's the USGA's job. That's the RNA's job. And that's really not a popular decision. Uh, and it takes some foresight, but if you really care about the game, I mean, I think it's sort of incumbent to look at really what do we love about it? And is it, is, is the thing we love about it the most hitting it the farthest we can? I mean, there's so many other elements to it. If, if there's a small sacrifice in distance and I'm talking about for the average player, and there hasn't been obviously a rollback. He has not been affected by this. It's just such a small price to pay, uh, it, you know, to, to keep the game viable, to keep uh, golf course from going broke, from getting, from keeping the green fees from going up to where it's not accessible. I, I think one of the most important things about golf is that people can, of, of very modest means, lower income people can go play it. And the more expensive it gets, the less it, it the more it becomes a 1%er game, it's already happening. I think too much you know the 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 people who really move the needle in golf that that sustain golf that pay for golf that 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 keep it a really important business with the equipment makers with the 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 private clubs and and the high-end public clubs are are wealthy people and i i just want to see you know it just spread across because that i just think the game's so much better i mean i come from san francisco not to idealize You know one place but that was a place where golf was really blue-collar and as a result it has remained part of the culture there uh, with the with the public courses and it's a it's a it's a battle to keep that going but I just think it makes the game so much better it it makes it America's game in, in it's not totally America's game obviously football and baseball are bigger but as far as participatory I think golf is still it has become and I hope it sustains itself as America's game
0: all right let's let's transition uh, to something that recently was announced, and this is going back 10 days, but this is this is going to be an evolving thing, and that is the way the PGA Tour is going to present itself in 2024 and beyond. Um, what was your initial reaction to this to this designated series, which is going to be essentially kind of what they've done this year, kind of on the fly, but in a in a in a more modest-sized fields? with no cuts. Um, do you like what they're doing here?
1: Well, I thought it was an important moment. I mean, basically, this is a battle against Live right now. And I just thought that was it was a, a good move, a, a strategic move, a pragmatic move, um, and probably a winning move to, you know, really, on Liv's own terms, basically say, we have a better product than you. Because if you're going to talk about high-profile players, we have, more of them, and we're going to present them now in a more um, obvious way. Uh, And I think it is an attractive thing to see the best against the best more often. Um, So I think that kind of wins the argument for why they did it. Uh, I do think there might be some uh, ramifications going forward where it may not be the very best thing for for the highest level of competition as far as truly making the tournaments the most competitive possible it, it, when it's limited field and there's no cut and you're cutting out a lot of tour players who on their a game are capable of beating the same guys you're saying are a level above i think that's a flaw in the premise but at this moment i think it's a a worthwhile flaw to endure until things shake out a little bit more
0: i, I think that this I do think they'll continue to tweak it as they should. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple things, you and I have had this conversation for years, and I've told you that my word that I've always associated with the World Golf Championship series, which is 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 dying um, this week with the conclusion of the match play, it reeked of softness. Um and I understand that when you want to when you want to congregate the best players in the world that are coming from all corners, you know the idea of two days and you're out the door, Look, championship golf jeopardy is associated with performance, and if there is if if there is not jeopardy through two days, and you are you are insulating the best players even more, I think it runs counter to what championship golf is. There has to be a price to pay for not being good enough that mm-hmm. week, and to play two additional days, whether you make a run or not. And let's say you sneak into the top twenty. um... Losing that is part of the essence of what separates you, and that's what separates you from Liv, which is one less round and no Mm -hmm. cuts. Um, I understand the challenge that Liv has presented, um, and I also understand the the idea of getting these guys together more often, but why not a hundred and a cut? And not to mention the ramifications on concessions. You have a smaller field starting at the the beginning of the week like – yeah, you got, well, you got one wave. You don't have two waves. You're not, I mean, I, I think there are things, and you can say, well, oh, stop worrying. You're, you don't care about concessions. Well, to some yeah. degree, yes, I do. Yes, yeah. I do. These are businesses that, that these people are trying to run. But why not 100 and cut to the low 55 or the low 50? Why not?
1: No, I, you know, I, I, one of the things that's come out of this is how much it turns out the best, very best players thought about the cut all the time when they were playing. It was important. It, it changed the way they played on Thursday and Friday. They wanted to stay in it. I mean, this is from Jack Nicholas on down. I mean, and, and some people, you know, I, I consider Tigers' closing record on after third round leads uh to be his greatest record, but some consider it the consecutive cut record. And and Byron Nelson had it too. Making cuts is a, you know, not just a skill, but it's it's a uh it's an accomplishment. Uh it says something about how good you are that you can con- control, you know, your score while not just shooting it at, at pins, you know, at, at, at playing percentages, at at playing within yourself at a time when obviously you'd love to shoot as low as you could and get ahead of the field, but you've got to guard against the big number. And that's that's tournament golf. Uh it's it's not match play, it's it's metal play. And so I just feel like Potter Harrington recently talked about God I love the PGA Tour Championship. No cut. I'm so free on the first round. I can just let it go. And it's great. And you do see, you know, look at how Padraig's playing now. I mean, it's coincidental, but I, this distance thing. But, I mean, he can really let it go the first round. Now, would he do that if he was worried about a cut as much? Probably not. Does that mean the product's not as exciting? I wouldn't say so. I think if you, if you understand what these guys are actually accomplishing and how you have to stay controlled within yourself, there's, there's just greater admiration for pulling it all off that's kind of nuanced because I think, you know, distance, let's face it, and I don't mean to digress, but distance itself is a, an attractive, you know, uh, uh, aspect of the game, Sure, uh, but I, and it's a skill and it should be rewarded. And I, one of the, I think, uh, misunderstandings about the, the USGA's and the RNA's proposal is that it's going to thwart athleticism, nothing of the kind. In fact, it probably will, I would say, uh, reward greater athleticism more because the challenge will be slightly greater with a with a a golf ball that makes the game slightly harder so you know that's that's all missing the point uh but as far as the cut I say restore it just to keep the tension as you say you know that term money grab you say softness you know money grab used to be a cliche that got thrown around with the WCs it was never intended that way and it became that way the fans perceived it they would see guys mailing it in after they shot 78 in the first round. You know, and it and it just took some of the intensity and some of to me the challenge and the attraction of the pressure and what has to be overcome at the highest level.
0: You know, last thing on this is I I, I understand you and I have had a lot of conversations about all sports. It's essential that the, that the best meet up and 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 meet against each other. And it's a very fickle, you know it's a very fickle expectation in golf because in golf. to have these players align with form in the collective, it just doesn't happen that often. Right. Getting them together, it it, it it certainly helps that equation of it possibly happening more. But one of the chief things that the PGA Tour has trumpeted, and it's been evidence in their acquisition of one tour, whether it be the Canadian Tour, the creation of Latino America, right. is that these arteries – are, are an indication of the depth of talent that is trying to ascend to the, the summit, which is the PGA Tour, and yeah. stunting, stunting, you know, whether it's 20 or 30 players on a weekly basis, you're depriving the, those individual events of one of the essence of, of all sports, and that is the door needs to be ajar for the underdog. Gotta be there. You've got to allow the Taylor Moores in the back door. you got to allow Eric Cole in the back door. Max Homa doesn't win the Wells Fargo yeah. in 2019 for his first mm-hmm. win. Playing with Rory on the weekend, he was outside the top 400. Would he have won eventually? Yes. But but those things are, are part of the fabric, not only of professional sports, but the PGA Tour is trumpeted. Like, look at all these ways yeah. that you can make yeah. your way there. And they
1: kind of want it both ways, yeah. Y-
0: yes, yeah, 70 and, and- to 80, You're, you're, you're just, you're not trimming fat. You're trimming elite.
1: I think it's especially true in golf. When you talk about, you know, sports, uh, you want to leave room for the underdog. And maybe I'm wrong, but I just feel like because of the capricious nature of the game and how hard it is to have your best stuff, so to speak, your A game, uh, it's usually players, you know, playing with somewhat of of less than their, their best and making the most of it, which I guess happens in most sports. But in golf, when somebody does have their best and they happen to be good enough to have a tour card, but maybe aren't a star, they have a better chance than the same, let's say, uh, analogous person in another sport to excel. I mean, I think if you watch the NBA or any sport, you you can see why the the bench players are the bench players usually. Um, In golf, if somebody's hot and Taylor Moore's hot, he looks like, you know, Steph Curry that week. So... I think that's—I maybe I have said it very well—but I think that that's what's true about golf: is there's just way more variable uh, levels that players reach throughout a season, and the top level is rarely reached by even the best. I mean, even Tiger and Jack they—they barely had their A game, maybe four times a year. Um, and so everything else is a battle of just making the most of what you've got. And if you happen to be. Good enough to be out there and you have everything going that week you will beat a lot of guys who are going to be in the hall of fame and you know that's i think that's kind of more unique in golf
0: i mean i look adam shank um you know adam shank was speething speeth
1: right
0: And that in that and and people now have whether it's a modest affinity or at least an awareness of him that you're going i'll be damned that yeah. guy, that guy made a 71 footer when when Spieth was yeah. 14 feet, and it yeah. clearly outplayed him on that hole. And you're going, wow, that that moment, those moments, are not what drive the PGA Tour. But there is there is an element to that that the I hope riches. doesn't get lost um, yeah. because you know for the for the idea for the idea that you know they'll, they'll still support these non-designated events, like as evidenced by the Valspar with with Spieth and Thomas in the field. I hope so. I hope so. Because it can't, you know, it can't be that different.
1: I would just, it's, it, just, just, just to throw it out there, but yeah. it's so rare. But like Brock Purdy was that kind of, you know, kind of a Taylor Moore uh, yeah. this year for the 49ers. It turns out he's really good. So, you know, it wasn't like the draft number actually valued him correctly. Or Jeremy Lin in the NBA, you know, had this incredible moment. But it. it I think it's just more part of the fabric of, the, of golf as opposed to those being really – really rare in, in, uh, in the big sport, in the big team sports.
0: I didn't know you got wrapped up in Lynn's sanity, uh, with Jeremy Lynn all those years ago. All right. Let let, 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 <laughs> let, us finish up with this with the, your first masters. From what I understand, I, if my memory serves was 1986, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pretty good year. Uh, like Jim Nance, pretty good year to be baptized. Uh, you on, the, on the, the scribe writing side and him <laughs> being thrust into the fray, sitting there on the 16th hole going, you've got to be kidding me. This is all coming toward me. Um, why, why do you think the Masters has become, and I don't think there's any argument here, the most famous golf tournament in the world?
1: Yes. Um, well, you know, there's a lot of obvious things, I guess, because it's played on the same course, and we have all now become so familiar with, with every hole. I mean, I think the players championship uh, really benefits from that. Also, it's not going to be a major because of the, the close shop of the four. But I think when you know the golf course that intimately, it just creates a relationship with it. Um, but it, it just goes back to everything. Uh, if you if you are someone who reads a lot of golf history, I think Bobby Jones's name has some magic. And what he considered to be ideal carries credibility as something that is worthwhile to pursue for everybody and the way that golf course is set up to reward really exciting shots, talent shots, um, so to speak, you know, these long shots in the, in the, the four and a halfs. And those are the most exciting shots in golf. And when you see that the greatest players tend to excel in those conditions, it becomes a star um, driven, you know, without being a designated event or a limited field, it becomes sort of star driven. the, the Somehow, the Masters has found the way to, um, I guess, create the most favorable favorable conditions for the most talented players, has created a winner's list that is really impressive and makes you feel like, this is the tournament I want to see, because the chances are my favorite player or the best player in the game is going to win it. And that's really hard to say from the U.S. Open and the Open Championship on down. Uh, now it's a smaller field, and you could say, in a, relatively speaking, it's a limited field. But I think it's more about the style of play and the golf course. And then I would say, I, and this is, you know, I was not the biggest fan of the Masters growing up. Not that I criticized it, but mm-hmm. I loved the U.S. Open. So to did me, I. That was the ultimate event. Yep. But I have to say, I think in the last twenty years, the, the Masters, and I think it started with Billy Payne, they have used that collective brain power they have in their in their membership with all these CEOs and really smart people about how to present a product and have just taken the best ideas and made it happen in a way that it just is a great show and I still love the US Open and I think if I had if I could have won you know I could win one championship it'd be the US Open but as a show as a presentation as a stage and for the the regular golf fan and the casual a uh, golf fan, and just a general sports fan. It's the best show. And I think that's why it's the most famous.
0: you know you you mentioned the these these people, and i I think that I think that billy payne was was, you know, absolutely a shift. You know, i I think of the chairmans of the club in my lifetime. Um, and I think about them, you know, affectionately because they seem like, but they were <laughs> they they were not necessarily, and I mean this respectfully, sure. not necessarily in their prime when it came to whatever business it was that they ran. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas Billy Payne had just executed something um, that not only gave him public cachet, and I'm talking about the 96 Olympics in Atlanta, but that this is somebody who had a a tremendous amount of acumen as we looked at what was happening with digital distribution Mm -hmm. and and the way that you present things now in sports. he ushered in an era that was kind of next level as far as how do we present this product globally while not, not taking away that particular experience of those people on the ground. You're still not coming on the air at 8 o'clock in the morning, television. No, yeah. but we're going to have the damnedest, swiftest, slickest digital product anybody's ever seen. There's no glitches. There's no, there's no clumsiness to it. It's brilliant. But then but they Jaime, the other thing is is that whether it's the viewing experience or the on site experience, and I don't I don't mean that these other tournaments have sold out. They're huge. It comes on at eight o'clock in the morning. You watch every shot, and that's great. But there's something particular about this event that remains true today. When you're on the property, you're not gonna sit there and stay on your phone and take pictures of people (laughs) standing five feet from you. It's a time capsule. It's something that has been lost with virtually every other sporting experience that I've had in my lifetime. They're not going to give it away. And there's incredible value in that. Don't you agree?
1: I do. It's every great exclusive quality product in the world has an exclusivity to it. And the Masters has retained that. I think they've had it both ways in in the best sense in that they have modernized, but they've retained retained traditions. Uh, And they picked the right ones. They picked the right traditions to retain. And they just have met very few missteps after, you know, I think a very checkered career of missteps in terms of, uh, you know, the formation of the masters. And, you know, we can all use hindsight to find mistakes, but they have, they have avoided those. Uh, and in fact, in some ways have become, and this is, you know, make could be an oxymoron, but it's sort of cultural leaders in golf, uh, which is important. Uh, and, and I think that's where they've also become more relatable. Um, to people who who watch sports and go, gee, I admire that product. What they're doing is it's global. It's it's more socially aware than perhaps golf has been. And you wouldn't necessarily have said that about Augusta National forty years ago. And now you do.
0: No, you're right. And it's I, I always thought that the Masters felt like, you know, global golf renewal. Uh, that that you know, in most parts of the United States, you're coming out of the thaw. Uh, you were not only thinking about golf, you are actually maybe playing. So they had that inherent advantage in terms of where they fall on the calendar. But with the addition of these, these, these amateur events that provide an invitation, whether it be Latin America or, or the Asia-Pacific Amateur Championship, and then you also now you have kids on the property on a Sunday. You have women there competing on a Saturday. They're touching all points in, in ways that, that I think are genuinely impactful. And I'm not here to to, to beat their drum form. They don't need me to, but but they are they're they're advancing the game by looking at it. And I used to say, you talk about a closed shop, that was a closed shop oh, in, yeah. in 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 every possible way. And now there's this sense of inclusion. And by the way, I don't think it's accidental that these other clubs, whether it be Seminole, hosting a Walker Cup, or, or the, the, the clubs that, that have these um, these drive, chip, and putt regional finals. These are major championship venues. Not on, their, on, on my life or yours would I think that they would have had the impetus or the desire to do any of this, but they feel a sense of responsibility that is being driven by that club to do those things.
1: I think you're right. And, you know, we know people, you know, the movers and shakers, and a lot of them, come from great wealth and, but they're, you know, they're responsible. Well, it's like Bill Gates or, or, uh, Warren Buffett, uh, golf has those kind of people within it and they know how the world's working now, uh, in a way that is, I think, you know, it's good business to be socially responsible basically. And, you know, golf's got a long way to go in that regard. Yes. But I do think Augusta has become a leader in that area and they're being emulated by other clubs, as you said, give
0: me a, uh- Give me a couple um, Masters tournaments that stand out for you that, don't, that are not Tiger wins. Uh, In right. your time covering, it. 86 doesn't count. It's not fair, a fair fight. Um, give me a couple that, that stand out to you that, that don't maybe get a, as appreciated as much as they should.
1: You know, I think I've got to have a dark soul when it comes to golf <laughs> because I just remember the really uh, you know, devastating defeats uh, and those are great tournaments, uh, but they're poignant. And uh, I think of Raymond Floyd losing to to, to Nick Faldo in uh, in '90. It just hurt me because uh, I was really rooting for Raymond. He was at an age I think he was 49, 48 then. Uh, maybe maybe no, he was a little. Maybe, but he was you know well into his late 40s. And uh, he was
0: almost 50. He had well, already been a Ryder Cup captain.
1: I don't think he would turned 50 yet in, in, no, no. I said
0: he was almost 50,
1: almost 50. Yeah. I I, I want to say he was 49, but you know, he loved that tournament so much. He'd won it before. Uh, He played so beautifully. I I always love when a, an aging veteran just gets the most out of it and you know, he's pouring all his wisdom into it and it's harder because, you know, the accumulation of scar tissue creates, you know, more, more nervousness and uh, more fragility and he was handling it so perfectly and, And Faldo, you know, was kind of this relentless force, you know, uh, and he did that to Greg Norman, too. Uh, It wasn't always the romantic, you know, force, but it was just pure golf. And Raymond just made a couple of little mistakes at the end. And even courageously, I remember he hit in the bunker on the drive on 18 after he kind of lost the lead. And then he hit in the bunker uh, on greenside and he still got it up and down to get into the playoff. And it just it was just guts. And, and yet, it fell short. It was kind of like the old man on the sea, you know? It was just sad. <laughs> and, and, um, but I just remember those really well. I mean, I remember Scott Hoke, too. The, both of those are, are Nick Faldo victories. But I also remember Nick playing perfect golf on Sunday against Norman. Uh, and that, that gets lost sometimes. That 67 was just airtight. Um, obviously, Greg lost it going, you know, uh, he lost, lost the thread, so to speak, and it happens. And that was sad, but I, 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 think there's a triumph too. in uh, in just holding it together when there's just no room for error. And that was almost perfect golf. So, I mean, you could pick any one, probably we'd find something, you know, really, you know, compelling about them, but those kind of stand out to me. Um, and, uh, I, I you know, I, I'm a, I'm a Raymond Floyd flat fan, uh, the way he played, it wasn't beautiful, but it was just so sophisticated.
0: Yeah, no just, doubt. Uh, I, again, he, he had been the Ryder Cup captain in 89. Yeah. I mean, it, and here he is the next year. And then he was on the Ryder Cup team in 1991. All right, let me get you out of here very quickly. Who's the best storyteller uh, in your career in a media center?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, probably Tom Callahan. Okay. Tom Callahan, you know, I was very fortunate to work at Golf Digest, and Jerry Tardy is just a great, like, he's a impresario. He's a, he's, he's a great Hollywood producer. He brings people together. He would bring these round tables at the the rented house at, Olymp, at uh, excuse me at uh, at the masters um, for dinners, and but it would be it would be Charlie Price, Herb Wind, Alistair Cook, oh. uh, one night. I mean, Dan Jenkins, uh, Dave Anderson. It was just amazing. Uh, and for someone you know young in the business like me at the time, it was it was such a moment. I just I didn't say anything. But the best, the guy who would take the room over very often was Tom Callahan. And he, he just, he, he verbally, he's such an incredible writer. I'm just poetic, but very concise. But his stories would meander. He just had that gift, that Irish gift of just holding a room.
0: I, I'm going to end it with this, because I don't know the answer to this. The golf course you haven't played yet that you want to.
1: Oh, I'd like to play uh, Fisher's Island. I've never played there.
0: Uh um, oh, Trebian. Very, very good.
1: I, but, you know, I've been very... It's not like I, I feel so rich and I haven't played a lot like I haven't played as many as you have obviously and, and, and but I don't know it doesn't matter I feel like I've had so many rich experiences at at, at so many golf courses and, and, and they don't it doesn't I might like got to collect them but that I haven't played Muirfield I haven't played uh, Sunningdale I'd like to play those
0: okay well listen thank you as always for your thoughts. Uh, I hope that you and I will get to spend some time together uh, at the Masters if you're not running around with papers falling out of your briefcase, uh, trying to trying to chase another story. Thank yes. you.
1: Thank you, Gary. Great pleasure.
0: Really appreciate Jaime Diaz taking the time. Every conversation I have with him, I learned something. He's a great friend and one of the great minds in the game of golf. A reminder next week, A master's preview with me, Johnson Wagner, and we're adding Brendan DeYoung to the fold as well. Have a great week, everybody.